When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judas, daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and also Bathmath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now old, an old man, and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bone, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he loves it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Good morning, everyone. Awesome to be here with you. Uh, there is a, a parable of uh, a, a time from long ago of two friends walking down a road together. Uh, and as they get to a river crossing, they see that the bridge is broken and there is an old woman uh, by the side of the road. She explains to them that she has no way to get across in her old age. So the men look at each other and they offer to carry her across and they, they link arms and, and get her up and bring her across to the other side of the river, set her down and then continue on their way. After a little way down the road, uh, one of the guys says, Oh, my back is killing me. I can't believe we had to carry that old woman. Goes a little bit further down the road and he says, My back is so painful, that blasted woman. Why couldn't she get herself across the river? They keep on going further and further. He complains again and laments, Oh, my back is killing me. And the second man says to him, Do you know why your back is bothering you so much? It's because you still are carrying that woman that we laid down back at the river. So the thing is, when you hold on to bitterness and resentment, you make the pain that you've experienced so much worse and increase the damage that it does. And you might not immediately see why that is pertinent to this story today, but as we get into this passage, I think it's going to become really clear that there is a warning for us about bitterness and resentment and the damage that it can do. So let's jump into it. It's probably a pretty familiar story to you, Jacob and Esau, if you spent any time around church, the story of Jacob stealing his brother's blessing. Uh, It's a classic we've seen already, Jacob and Esau, in the book of Genesis. We've seen how Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for the uh, hearty price of a stew. Uh, We've seen how Rebekah favors Jacob and Isaac favors Esau, so there's some family tension there already. But the last time that we were in Genesis last week, we saw the story of Isaac and how he had been blessed in the land that God had promised to his father and now to him. He'd grown to be a wealthy guy, he'd grown to be a pretty forgiving guy, and he's doing really well. 
But then we get this interesting little note at the end of chapter 26, uh, and which I'll get to in just a second after we've covered this idea that we're going to be looking at things today in terms of family, blessing, God's plan, and how to live. But we've got this little note here from Genesis uh, 26. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Eli the, Hitt- Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now that phrase, their source of grief, is, I think, probably too soft a translation here in the NIV. Literally what it says in the Hebrew is that they were a spirit of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. Right? Esau marries these two women, and despite the blessing that's been upon Isaac and Rebekah through Isaac, it says here that these two women were bitterness in spirit to the two of them. You might ask yourself, well, how bad was it? Well, this is what we hear Rebecca say at the end of chapter 27, uh, after the story that we're going to look at today. She says to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Just, just think about this. There's a principle uh, in really, really good storytelling where you show, don't tell. You don't always join the dots, but you give the information for people to be able to put it together themselves. And we have here these two bits of information, little footnotes. Isaac and Rebecca had these two daughters-in-law that were like bitterness to their spirit to them. And Rebecca was so hurt by what these women had done that she was disgusted with living and she would rather die than see Jacob marry women like the ones that Esau has married. That's a lot of pain in the background of the story. That's a lot of resentment and bitterness in Rebecca's heart in this story. Now, why is that important? It's because this story is messed up, right? Like what Rebecca does to Isaac is messed up. It's a betrayal of a significant level and it's a really surprising one because when we're first introduced to Rebecca in chapter 24, she's the paragon of like Hebrew womanhood. She's beautiful, she's humble, she's got a servant heart, she's family orientated. Rebecca, by all accounts, as a young girl, seems great. And yet here, we have her betraying and deceiving her old blind husband. So what's going on? Well, I think that in the background of the story, we've got the details that what's driving Rebecca to do this is not, you know, she's trying in her own way to fulfill the prophecy that God had given them that we heard in the kid's spot before, that, you know, the younger is going, sorry, the older will serve the younger. Uh, Some people think that maybe it's just her favoritism with Jacob here. I think it's got to be more than that because we know that she is concerned about Esau. She's grieved that what she does costs her relationship with Esau. We see that at the end of chapter 27. So I think here we need to imagine ourselves thinking, what is going to happen? What is going to, Rebecca's life going to look like if Esau, with these wives who have brought her so much bitterness, becomes the head of the family after Isaac dies? These women will be elevated up into the social status and the heads of the family along with Isaac. They'll be the highest ranking women now and she'll be without her husband. And I think that these little bits of information give us some context for why Rebecca does what she does. Does it make what she does okay? No, of course not. But it does frame up for us what we can take away from this story more in terms of understanding Rebecca as a hurting person and what she does. So we're going to come circle back around to that at the end, but I want to get that context clear as we work our way through this story. So let's jump into the details of the story itself. 
It says here at the start of chapter 27, When Isaac was old, and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for his eldest son Esau and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. That's totally true. We're going to see that a little bit later. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. There's two things in Isaac's mind. Blessing his son before he dies, and the other one is always on his mind. It's his tasty meal. He loves the good food. It's mentioned multiple times. Esau is only too happy to go out and do this. He loves to get his hunt on. He's a man of the field, so he heads out to do this. But of course, we're told that Rebecca is listening. So Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. As Esau goes out, Rebecca goes to Jacob and she says, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game. The stuff that we just heard. She's got these, you know, I've heard his plans to bless him. And so she says to her son Jacob in verse 8, Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. I told you he likes food. They talk about it all the time. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Again, just notice the significance of this. Rebecca has heard the plans of her husband and acts immediately to try and make sure that Esau is not the one that's blessed. We're not told the reason for it directly, but like I said, we've got this little bit of piece of in the background that I think is this uh, context here that's important. Jacob responds like this. He says, but my brother Esau is a hairy man. Well, I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would be here to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. You've got to love Jacob for his consistency. As a younger man, he steals his brother's birthright for a blessing. When his mother says to him, I've got this plan to get you blessed, he doesn't blink and say, oh, is this right? His concern is, I might get caught and it might go badly for me. All right? Also, quick note, don't know how old you imagine Jacob to be typically, in this, you, pro- you probably imagine him as a young guy, you know, maybe even like sort of late teens, that sort of stuff. Uh, for the record, he's definitely over 60 years old at this point. All right, This is not a young man's foolishness. This is a continued and sustained pattern of behavior that we now have from Jacob. So this 60-plus-year-old man says, well, I don't want to curse upon me. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, big food, emphasis, just the way his father liked it, in case we missed it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of her elder son Esau, when she ha- which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she'd made. She's thought this through. There's details here, right? She knows I've got to get the clothes. I've got to somehow make uh, Jacob appear to be hairier than he actually is. I've got to make the food just the way that he likes it. Even though she seizes the moment, she has really thought this through as far as what she needs to do in order to deceive her husband. It's a curious thing because she understands intimate details about the way that Isaac perceives the world. She knows him. It suggests intimacy between the two of them. And yet at the same time, this unexplained decision to betray him and trick him. So, 
Jacob goes in to his father, now in the goatskin in his brother's clothes, and says, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? This is a good storytelling, right? Because we know, we've been told that Isaac is blind, he's weak in the eyes, he's an older man, all right? But his wits are still about him. He hears a voice, and he's like, who, who is this? I've been addressed as father, but I'm not sure who is it. I'm expecting Esau, but I don't totally know what's happening here. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you give me your, you may give me your blessing. Again, this 60-plus-old gentleman looks at his blind father and straight-up lies about who he is. Whatever his misgivings were about this plan because of fear of being caught, it did not extend to the ethical problem of lying directly to his father's face. But it gets worse. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? Again, Isaac's wits are about him. He's a little confused here. This was much faster than I was anticipating. I just ate, and now I'm going to have to eat again. Probably. I don't know. It doesn't say that, but that's my guess. Then Jacob says, The Lord your God gave me success. He replied. Jacob is not content with simply lying to his father's face. He needs to blaspheme God in order to pull this one off. He essentially says, that God has helped me do this thing that you asked in order to make the lie more convincing. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's using it completely wrongly. Isaac hears this and says, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are Esau, my son, or not. He's he's not sold, right? He really still thinks, what is going on here? The voice doesn't quite sound right, as we're about to hear. And that was very fast. Uh, What's happening? So Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him, and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Now, I'm going to come back to the blessings. A little bit later, we'll look at them separately, but we're going to to jump forward here in just a second. But again, notice the way that Isaac is still just, what is going on? He really wants to make sure that he's got the right guy, and he is suspicious about what's happening. Again, he asks, are you really my son Esau? Then he said, my son, uh, and again, this is the chance, right? So he asks, are you my son Esau? Jacob's got one final chance to back out. He's been asked now three times, who are you? Are you my son Esau? He could still get out of it at this point. But he presses forward saying, I am. And then Isaac said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate. And he brought some wine and he drank. Now skip ahead to what happens next. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Now remember, Isaac is an old man. At this point, he's probably 130 years old. And upon hearing this news, this old blind man trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? 
I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And now hear Esau's response. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, father. Bless me too, my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Jacob, his name, which my name is derivative of, this is always great, means supplanter or deceiver. My name literally means lying trap. Make that of that what you will. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He says, deceiver, supplanter. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. The first time, of course, being his birthright. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you, my son? Now that's an interesting little tidbit, isn't it? Isaac's blessing in his mind was so all-encompassing that there was nothing else to give. He hadn't even seemingly considered this. He doesn't turn and say, well, I guess you can have Jacob's blessing, which I was planning on giving to him. Isaac's entire energy was focused on blessing Esau. Now, I'm mostly sympathetic towards Isaac in this passage as the one who's deceived and taken advantage of in a pretty cruel way. But at the same time, it's undeniable that his favoritism of Esau in numerous ways has made a problem of this situation as well, to the point where we see here, he doesn't even seem to have considered another blessing for his other son. It's all going to Esau. So Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, sustained him, as we just said. And then Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept aloud. We're not sure why these blessings were such a big deal. Culturally, uh, there's this clear sense that this blessing was of huge significance. And even the idea that the blessing couldn't be withdrawn once it was given, it's confusing to us now and we don't have enough to totally put it together. But the key thing is that this is what they believe. They believe that this was something that carried enormous weight and their response to it has been deception, betrayal, scheming in order to get this thing for themselves or for their favorite. Or they've despised it like Esau did earlier in being willing to give it away. It's a tense family situation with lots of layers, lots of problems, lots of troubles with this blessing sitting writing it right at the middle of it. Not necessarily a bad thing, but a thing that carried so much weight that it's bent and shaped all of these people's lives around it. So let's have a look at these blessings and see what's being said there. This is the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob when he's dressed up as Esau. It says in verse 28, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. It feels like a blessing for Esau, right? A man of the fields, you know, it flows out of his, as Isaac smells uh, Jacob wearing the, the goatskin hair and he breathes it in and says, oh, my son smells like the fields. And out of it flows this blessing of the heavens due and earth's richness. And it's interesting that he says here, an abundance of grain and new wine be upon you. Remember, one of the things that we looked at last week was how Isaac began to transition from this nomadic wanderer to now somebody who's settled in the land. This is not a blessing of cattle and herds, 
This is a blessing of wine and new grain. It's a blessing for a person of the land. And he says, may nations serve you. We've talked before about how uh, the blessings that God gave to Abraham were for a people, for a land, and that his family would be a blessing to the nations. The nations on view here, but not so much to be a blessing to them, but rather to rule over them, which is an interesting little twist. And we've got this clear sense here that it was Isaac's intention for Jacob to serve Esau. May you be lord over your brothers, he intended to say to Esau. Which again is interesting in light of the words that we'd had from God earlier given to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. Now it doesn't expressly tell us that Rebekah told Isaac those words. It's hard to know. I can make a case either way as to whether he would have known or not. But either way, Isaac's plans at this point are going contrary to what God's plans were. So lots of interesting little bits and pieces here in the blessing. What about the blessing that Isaac does end up giving to Esau, the second blessing? It says in verse 30, when Esau begged for that blessing, his father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. This is not a blessing for somebody who lives and dwells in the land. This is a blessing for a wanderer who lives by the sword. He is not going to have a content place in which to dwell and be blessed in it. He is going to be a wandering people. And those words there where it says, when you grow restless, you will throw his, you will throw off his yoke, aren't actually fulfilled in the times of Esau and Jacob's lives themselves, but as we trace their family descendants, we see that Esau becomes the father of a people who were called the Edomites and the nation of Edom. And initially, when the kingdom of Israel is founded uh, under Saul and then David, Edom is part of David's territory, but on two separate occasions during the life of God's people, Edom rebel against Israel and become their own independent nation. Deaths, problems, chaos will come forth from these two brothers eventually at at least two different points in their histories. So these blessings are a big deal. The blessings that come upon Jacob are real. He indeed will become a wealthy man in the land and Esau will indeed become a wandering nomad living by the sword and so too will his descendants. And so these blessings have repercussions for hundreds of years. And the last thing that I just want to point out briefly before we think about what this means for us is this. This is all part of God's plan. It said there in Genesis 25, The Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. Paul picks up on this verse in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9 to explain why in Jesus' time, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the nation of Israel had not come to worship him as a whole. It's like, and, and people, you know, were saying, well, what's going on there? And Paul says, it's not as though God's word has failed because God has actually always worked this way where he has chosen those who will be his. And it's important to note here that this is the choice that God declares before Jacob or Esau are even born. And it's also important to point out 
that neither Jacob or Esau are deserving of all the blessings that come. Neither Jacob nor Esau have proven themselves to be worthy men who we would think, yes, these are really great guys to be super wealthy. One of them despises it, doesn't respect it. One of them is willing to be deceitful and and, and immoral in order to get it. Neither of these guys look like the sort of people we'd say, oh yeah, they deserve to be blessed. And in that, God's plan here points us towards his graciousness, that he blesses people that don't deserve it. It's by his grace, not by our works or by our own efforts, that God's blessing comes upon people. And so in the midst of this messed up family drama, we still see God being gracious and merciful and kind to them, even though they don't deserve it. Alright, so, we've got here these elements of bitterness of resentment from Rebecca, we've got the blessings and the consequences that come forth from them, and we've got this idea, this is all part of God's plan. So let's think about what that means for us today. The first takeaway for us, I think, is that we need to be thankful for the graciousness of God. When we look at this story of family drama and the things that they do to each other, I imagine that as we each look back through our own lives, we can see things that we've done to our siblings and our parents and our children and our friends and others where we look at it and say, that was messed up. Where we have hurt people. Where we know there's things that we've done that's caused damage that for sometimes have lasted for decades. The hurts that we've caused or we've experienced those hurts ourselves. And as we see here in this passage, what God does with broken, sinful people is graciously bless them. Not because of what they've done or what they deserve, but because of God's mercy and grace. And so it should humble us always for those of us who have been given this privilege to be part of God's people, to to believe and trust in Jesus, this gift of faith that God's given to us, to always be gracious because he has been gracious with us, to always be thankful for the mercy that he has shown to us. That's the first one for us to take away. The second one is this. Be thankful for God's plan. God's plan clearly sits over this whole story. Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger. God is in all of this, in the middle of this messed up brokenness, and is going to use it for his good and for the good of those who love him. That's his promise to us in Romans 8.28. And so when we are involved in messed up situations, when we are dealing with the awful effects of brokenness and sin, particularly maybe in today's context, thinking about bitterness and resentment, it's an encouraging thought for us to remember that God's plans sit over all of this. Now, God's plans, it's a funny thing. When you trust in God, when you believe in his goodness, then God's plan can be an incredibly comforting thing. When you don't trust God and the idea that somebody else is in control of everything, that can be kind of a scary thing. But the place that we're to look as far as the trustworthiness of God's plan is his willingness to sacrifice Christ on the cross for us. If that's at the center of his plan, the story of his own willingness to sacrifice his son in order to extend grace and mercy to us, then we can trust in the nature of God's plan because at the heart of it is his mercy and grace to us. So that's the second one. We can be thankful for the graciousness of God. We can be thankful for God's plan. And the third one for us to finish on today is the way to choose sacrifice and forgiveness 
over bitterness. I'm so sympathetic to Rebecca in this situation. We're not told much about these Hittite women or exactly what it is that they've done, but I can only assume, based on what Rebecca's telling us, that it's been pretty painful. I'm inclined to think that whatever pain she's experienced, it's because of something real. We know that these are people that don't believe in the God of Abraham. We don't know exactly what's come along with that. But it's clear for Isaac and Rebecca, these women have brought bitterness of spirit to them. But Rebecca's response to, I think, be fearful of what the future look, might look like if these women take an even more prominent place, which I get from the end of 27 with this idea that life won't be worth living if Jacob marries these women. If, if he has more women like this in his life, my life won't be worth living. She's, she's afraid of what the future might bring with women like this in it. And she's been hurt. We know this. She's carried bitterness and resentfulness with it. By this point, the boy's probably plus 60 years of age. Esau married these women when he was 40. It's 20 plus years her bitterness and resentment to grow. And where she takes it is the deception of her husband, the loss of relationship with her son Esau because of the favoritism that she's shown to Jacob. And as we'll see more next week, she never actually sees Jacob again. He's forced to flee because of Esau's rage against him. The consequences, even as I'm sympathetic towards Rebecca for the situation that she's in, the consequences of her bitterness and resentment are extreme. And I can't help but think about Jesus, who was even more unjustifiably treated cruelly than what Rebecca was, the perfect sinless saviour, the son of God, who was despised and rejected, who was beat and crucified, who was rejected by those who should have loved him the most. He had every reason in his human nature for bitterness and resentfulness to dominate him. And yet, Jesus chose to sacrifice himself to save those whose sin brought about his death. And so he says to us in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect or mature, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The mature, the perfect response of faith when we are persecuted and oppressed and rejected and hurt is to forgive and pray for our enemies. And I'm not in any way trying to make light of the pain that we feel. And I think it's entirely fair that you would ask yourself the question, like, how is that even possible? How, how, how could we possibly do such a thing? James, you don't know the hurt that these people have caused me. You don't know what it is that I've suffered. And it's true, I probably don't. I don't know the the entirety of the pain that you have experienced and, and why you've held on to it, but I know this. I know that Jesus' death and resurrection, both what he achieves on the cross, the example that he sets for us, and the fact that his now spirit lives within us, makes it possible for us to do the impossible. It makes it possible for us to forgive those 
who we have hated and resented and held bitterness against for decades. And again, you say, well, that's great, but how do we do this? And the answer is this. We have to take our bitterness and resentfulness and make so much more of God's grace and mercy to us. Let me tell you what I mean. I have here a fridge magnet. Hopefully you can see that there. It's not very big, right? Got this fridge magnet. Hold it up against the the context of this room. I can see all sorts of stuff, okay? But imagine for a moment this represents the bitterness and resentment that comes from the hurt that somebody's done me. And if I close my eye and just focus on this thing, despite its relative size to everything else in the room, man, there's nothing else that I can see, right? Like, this is it. The whole world is this hurt and pain and my bitterness and resentment. doesn't matter where I look, this is all I see. Even though I can sort of see things a bit around the edges, you know what? It always comes back to this. This, this is what I see. If we want to deal with the bitterness and resentment and hurt that we've experienced, what we need to do is put it back away from us and see it in the light of God's glory and all that he has done for us. If I'm holding it up here, if this is all that I'm looking at, I can't do anything with it. But if I put it back in the light of God's grace and see it in the face of his glory, and all that he's done, well, now I can put this in its proper place. Because scripture promises me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that our light and momentary afflictions in this world are achieving for us an eternal glory as we are being counted worthy of suffering with Christ. So if you have been in this place of bitterness and resentment, if this has been what you have been living with, if you have been holding on to hurt, so even if you just know this is your tendency, maybe you haven't been doing this for decades yet, but you can see it in you, right? That tendency that when somebody does something against you to brood over it, to hold on to it, to see things in a negative light that you can't see past that thing. Hear this warning from this passage. That if we turn to, to scheming and fear of the future and deception, we are only going to magnify that pain. It's like the story that I told at the start. The pain of his back might have been real, but it was so much worse because he couldn't let go of the blame on the woman. Rebecca's pain was real, but how much worse did she make it by the deception and scheming where she never sees her son again, she loses one a relationship with the other, she deceives her husband. How much the nations of Edom and Israel warring against each other, how much pain came from her unwillingness to let go of that. And again, I'm sympathetic. The pain was real. Nobody is denying that. But this is what it means to follow Christ in the fullness and perfection of his spirit. That we don't hold on to bitterness and resentment. That we let it go as we focus on God's glory and his grace and all that he's done for us. We don't do it in our own strength. We lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, this isn't good for me. It's not going to be good for others. And you've paid the price to make it possible for me to be forgiven. And I can forgive others also. To pray for them to pray that they too would know God's mercy and peace. And so, I know for some of you this is a heavy word this week. It's a hard word, but I hope it's a hopeful one. I hope it gives you some sense that it's possible to let go of the bitterness and resentment that you may have held on to for years. And even if you can't do it for yourself, then do it as an act of worship to the Lord. Give it to Him. 
saying, Father, I know that this is what you want me to do and turn to him for the strength to do it well. And I'm going to pray that we'd be able to do that now. Father God, thank you so much for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for your plan that sits over all that we do and thank you that we know it's gracious and merciful because Jesus sits at the center of it. Thank you, Father, that you've made it possible for us to love those that persecute us, to love our enemies. Father, help us to be wise when we've been hurt and when hurting has been so much of a part of our experience and when it might still be a part of our experience. Help us to put wise boundaries in place. Help us, Father, to recognize that it's okay to protect ourselves and yet at the same time, Lord, to know that we have to have a willingness to forgive and want God's best for those who are our enemies. Father, we confess that in the natural, in our natural selves, this is impossible. As we think about those who have hurt us and what they've done, in our own strength, we have no power to let this go. And so we cry out and ask for your spirit and that deep understanding of your glory and mercy and forgiveness to us to color what we do. Help us to, to remove the bitterness from right up in front of our eyes and to put it in perspective compared to all that you have done for us. And as we do this, Father, As we lay it down, may we worship you above all and give you the glory you so richly deserve. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.